For almost half a century, Auntie Pat Turner has been at the forefront of community efforts to address health and welfare inequalities faced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Drawing on her own experiences and family connections to social justice, Auntie Pat has held a number of senior leadership positions in government, business and academia, including being the only Aboriginal woman and longest serving CEO of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission and the inaugural CEO of NITV. A renowned straight shooter, in recent years she's been working alongside Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians Ken Wyatt to develop a radical remodelling of the Closing the Gap scheme established by the Rudd government in 2008. Central to that is her role as Coalition of Peaks convener and co-chair of the Joint Council on Closing the Gap. I caught up with Auntie Pat recently and began by asking her about her formative years growing up in Central Australia. Oh, well, I observed a lot and as a young person, I was always extremely curious. I loved books, even though we didn't have very many. Uh, So the first house I remember us living in as a family was in the Gap, uh, on Gap Road, actually, and there were a whole series of asbestos cottages that they, the government had that our families could uh, rent and they were just really simple houses with three bedrooms, one bathroom, an inside toilet, a kitchen and uh, living and dining all in one with louvers on the windows and, you know, very basic. A wood stove, I remember the wood stove that my mum had to cook on and uh, the washing machine, if you were, you know, lucky enough to have one, which I can remember my mum had a um, twin tub, uh, but we also had an outside copper Um and there were no dryers or anything, and you could, didn't need it in Alice Springs because it was so hot. And uh, there was my brother, my older brother, who's now deceased, uh, Lionel, uh, myself. And then later came along my sister, who's six years younger, Janice, and uh, a year after her, my baby brother, Les. And mum was at home with us all the time, but dad was a windmill contractor. Uh, so he and a number of his uh, brothers, really, all had their own uh, small businesses. So my dad was a windmill contractor and my uncles were uh, drillers, um, uh, you know, putting the uh, bores, drilling the bores for water throughout many, many properties in Central Australia. And that was the source of water that people had. So dad would build the windmills and the tanks and the troughs uh, for the cattle to feed. So we saw him very rarely and I went to kindergarten really early because my brother was going. So we had this um, little bus from the Anglican church where they run the kindergarten, used to come around and pick him up. So one morning I decided that I'd get dressed and when the bus pulled up and they opened the back doors and mum was, you know, getting Lionel organised, I ran out and jumped in the bus and I went right down the end of the bus from away from the doors, close up to where the driver was and uh, or the driver's seat was, and just stood there. And they said, oh, you can't go, Pat, you're too young. And I said, no, I'm going. And they tried to coax me for quite a while, and I wasn't moving. So they just said, oh, let her come. 
<laughs> That's set things up for life. I know that your uh, father passed away when you were still quite young. What kind of an impact did that have on you? Oh, that had a major impact on all of us, the whole family, you know, because he was the breadwinner. And even though, you know, we didn't see a lot of him because he was always busy working out bush, I mean, when we could, um, later during the school holidays and so on, we'd all go out bush with him and we'd set up our camp. And, and I remember one, we had a food tent, especially, with big trellis tables across the back of it with all the food stored on that. And we used to get these really big tins of Milo. And I love Milo in those days, but not drinking it, eating it out of the tin. <laughs> and one day my dad came back must have been for morning tea or something, for a cuppa, and he opened the tent flap and there I was, and he says, hey, what are you doing? Well, not me, not me, and I had Milo all over my face and spoon just about in my mouth and put that down, he said, and go away. So I have very fond memories of my dad. Uh, yes, he died when I was 10. I was turning 11 later in the year. He died in March 1963, and we were left... With nothing, really. Uh, but the one good thing that happened was that he built us our own private home in Chewing Street in Alice Springs. And thank God we had our own home and, uh, you know, a roof and we were safe with our mum. So mum hadn't worked since all of us kids started to come along. She'd been a member of the Stolen Generations taken from Adelaide River and evacuated to South Australia and all the evacuees were sent to the racecourse in Balaclava and they were housed in the stables, so they weren't exactly in luxury accommodation. And my mum, after uh, things were starting to settle in uh, South Australia, was uh, sent out to work for a doctor in North Adelaide. And when they were allowed to return home, she and my eldest brother, Henry, uh, returned by train, stopped over in Alice Springs. She met my dad. She continued on her journey. He went up to the north and brought her back. And, you know, the rest is history. They married and lived in Alice and had us kids. And so mum always stayed in Alice, although she would visit her brothers in the top end when she could. You do have other famous people in your family as well who must have been very inspirational for you. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, of course, all my uncles in Alice Springs at the time, because large extended family and those who had their own uh, businesses, you know, I realised that they were self-supporting in terms of themselves and their families. So I understood that from a young age. But I used to love it when Uncle Charlie Perkins and his wife, Auntie Eileen, would come home to see Nana. So Nana actually lived across the road uh, from our house in Chewing Street and she had still had one of those old asbestos cottages and uh, quite often her brother... Uh, Grandpa Burke and and her sister Nana Kari would come and visit her. So when Uncle Charlie came home, he and Auntie Eileen stayed there and we were just over there the whole time I was, certainly, because I just loved hearing his stories about what was going on down south and, you know, and so on. So I understood that he was involved in the Freedom Rides. I'd listened to all of that on the radio when I was a kid. I can't remember whether we had television. I don't think we did. I don't think we could afford it, but the radio certainly was our link to the outside world and I was, you know, always interested in that. 
Yes, so I'm sure uh, people picked up that when you said Uncle Charlie, you meant Uncle Charlie Perkins, uh, and yeah. he actually was your great uncle. I mean, of course, when I refer to you as Auntie Pat, I, you're not my actual auntie. It's a, it's a form of deep respect in the Aboriginal community to acknowledge your eldership, but Uncle Charlie really was one of your uncles as well as, of course, earning the, the uncle, name. Yeah, he's yeah. my father's brother. Yes. Uh, so, the, you know, there was a big family, and then I had a lot of kids, Um so I knew Uncle Charlie well because uh, when he went to England to play soccer in the early days, you know, my dad was involved with that, gave him some support uh, to do that. And, of course, Charlie was a great advocate for Aboriginal rights and and better conditions for our people and I was very influenced by his uh, approach and uh, determined to carry that on, which I hope I've done well. So even from that early age, you're obviously really engaged with your education. You're very determined to get the best education you can. You've got these, you know, these wonderful examples of people, you know, really being big game changers. Did you know very early on that you wanted to do big things, that you would actually want to, you know, play a similar role in actually shaping some of the big national conversations? Well, not while I was still in high school, really. Um, I just wanted to get a good education and make sure that, I had the opportunity. See, my experience after Dad died and Mum had, you know, Mum was a stolen generation kid taken away with her sister from a place called Billingurry inland of Boralula when her and Auntie Katie were just little tots and the police came and said that they had to take the girls away for education to my grandmother, Harriet, Uh, and my grandfather was there. I never met my grandfather but, you know, they... They couldn't argue with the police, so the police just took these girls on horseback overland from inland to Boralula to Mataranka, put them on the train. As far as I know, they were sent by themselves from Mataranka to Darwin and picked up by people and put in Carlin Compound, never to be reunited by the government with their family, even though the official had said, the police had said at the time they were being taken away for education there was certainly no scheme for them to return home to their families during the school holidays. And they really had a very, very poor education, very poor. As soon as they were old enough, like, you know, 12, 13, 14, they were sent out to be domestic workers in the homes of white administrators in Darwin. Eventually, my mum ended up at Adelaide River uh, working as a cleaner in the hospital there and that's where she and my oldest brother were evacuated from when the bombing of Darwin started. Extraordinary. Just in your own journey, of course, you you get an education, you go back and work in Alice Springs for a little while, but then you moved to Canberra in 1978, a very early time for uh, an Aboriginal person to be joining uh, the public service. Can you tell us a bit about what took you to Canberra and the work you were doing when you first arrived there? And especially, should say, not just for an Aboriginal person, but for a woman as well. Well, I've done both. Uh, I studied, I went back to Adelaide. Uh, I did some really important work, as I saw it, when I was a welfare officer in Alice Springs. And we just set up Aboriginal Legal Aid and the Aboriginal... Central Australian Aboriginal Congress Medical Service and I was very active with the medical service and and became closely involved with the legal service because I was a welfare officer and I could see all these kids, um, you know, really probably be, be racially profiled by the police and I thought, oh, 
and I was dealing with, you know, juvenile justice uh, issues that came across my desk as a welfare officer. And having trained in Adelaide as a community development worker in a very intensive program for 12 months, I went back to Alice and did this welfare officer's job. So I started this program. I, I spoke to the parents. I spoke to the teachers at the high school. I spoke to the police prosecutor, the court, the magistrate's court, and Aboriginal Legal Aid, and got the permission to take kids that both I and the teachers and the families agreed would benefit from being involved. So I'd pick up 11 kids from the high school in the morning and get them over to the magistrate's court. We'd all sit in the jury box and we'd get a briefing from the clerk of courts about the process, what was going to happen. And I'd keep them there till lunchtime and then take them back to school so they could observe what was happening in the court and the processes. And then after school, I'd go back and they'd all and bring them back to my office and we'd sit around with the clerk of courts, the police prosecutor and the legal aid lawyer and myself with all the kids that day. And we'd talk about what happened in court and why certain things happened. And, you know, so I want to I was trying to raise their awareness of their rights as young people and as Aboriginal kids and understand how the criminal justice system worked, trying to prevent them from becoming involved in it. And then, so the kids would ask all these questions and and then after we finished, I'd drop them back home to their houses in the little bus that I borrowed from IAD. It was a really successful program. And after a while the boss, the head social worker, said you have to extend that program to the white kids in town, the juveniles. I said, no, I'm not doing that. You've got the Legal Aid Commission, Australian Legal Aid Commission, you mob organise it. Don't be so lazy. I'm just doing this for Aboriginal kids because they're the higher number that are presenting before the courts and we've got to get them educated. He said, well, if you don't do it, there's going to be problems. I said, are you threatening me with sacking? And he said, well, it could come to that. So I just said, oh, yeah, well, we'll see about that. So I jumped in my, well, on my motorbike. I love the idea of you on a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> I had this 250 Yamaha trail bike, which I thought was the deadliest thing. No, no licence. Working next door to the police station, and I had this bright yellow bomber jacket that was just cotton. Um, but I thought it was deadly. And... Uh, I rode down to IAD and spoke to the Reverend Jim Downing. And I said, you got a job here for me, Jim? He said, well, we could have. And I said, well, I want to continue this program with Aboriginal people in town, both with the mothers, helping them with their budgeting and so on, and paying how to pay the bills off and how to make sure they've got enough for tucker and rent and everything. And then I want to run this program with the kids. So we worked it out. Uh, we got... We got a position, so I resigned from welfare and went and worked at IAD and continued the program. So that meant I had more access to the bus. So I'd pick all the kids up on a Saturday and we'd go out bush and play softball or football or whatever in the in the bush and I'd have all the snags and chops and whatever and we'd have a barbecue and they'd have to help with all of that. And while we were cooking and eating, we'd be sitting around yarning and, you know, I had read uh, Palo Freire Pedagogy of the Press of the Oppressed. Uh, like I was reading all those sorts of books in those days, in my early twenties, and I was trying to create 
a real awareness about Aboriginal politics and Aboriginal rights and, you know, and their aspirations are being realised, you know, wanting them to strive and meet their dreams. We're talking about leadership and one thing that I think has been a hallmark of yours is that when you've gone somewhere public service, for example, you've always made sure a lot of other people have followed followed you. Can you talk a little bit about why that's been such a passion for you? Because a lot of people do great things, but they don't have such a commitment to seeing people come there after them. Well, I believe that Aboriginal Affairs should be run by, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs should be run by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So as I rose in the public sector, I did everything I could to ensure that other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders around me had the opportunities. Of course, every promotion I got was, you know, scowled upon by a lot of the white men uh, that I worked with, but that just sort of, I mean, it hurt, but it made me more determined. And the thing was that I had to work harder than any of them anyway, uh, and that was just the way it was. So it didn't really bother me. I had a bigger, you know, cause to fight for. I saw my role in government as making sure that the needs of Aboriginal community as expressed in the submissions received from organisations and communities around Australia were responded to appropriately with adequate funding. I saw it. Government had the money, our people had the needs, and it was important to make sure they were matched as best as we could. So when I became CEO of NITRO, I made sure I had a majority Aboriginal executive team with my deputies and, uh, and, bra- and division heads, which I did. I made that happen. I also gave 10 full scholarships to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff who were eligible to start and complete their undergraduate degree at a university. And so I gave those 10 a year for four years while I was the CEO. So that meant we had 40 university graduates funded directly on their, whatever their existing pay was. That's what they got to do their degree. And a lot of resistance, even from my uh, human services area. Uh, oh, we're going to lose these people or they're going to work uh, in other departments. I said, listen, this is my program. I'm the CEO. It's happening. And if we lose them, it's just spreading the ATSIC family and they will never forget the opportunity that they've had. And you can be rest assured that most of their kids are also going to get a university education because of their experience. So that was important. Also, the women who I mentored continuously over throughout my career. And, you know, people come up to me today and said, oh, I used to work with you in... And I said, really? And what's your name? I can't remember <laughs> everybody, you know. But it's lovely that they do. And I'm very proud of, you know, having made those pathways for others to realise their ambitions. I want to talk about just very briefly something else that you achieved that people who are seeing your advocacy around health might not know. And that was that when you left the public service, nobody will be surprised to know that you didn't really retire, but you became (laughs) the CEO of the National Indigenous Television Service or NITV. And probably a lot of people listening will know NITV and probably watch it. They probably don't know that you were the person who set it up. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that time 
time setting up a new television station. Uh, the money wasn't through from the government. The Northern Territory intervention was rolling out. I know these things because I was the chair at the time and I got to work with you. But can you share with us what the challenges were and how you approached it? Yes, well, I remember getting a phone call from Rachel Perkins, who was also, you know, closely involved. So there was a whole history to getting our own national television service that went back to people like Rachel at a meeting in Redfern. And so, you know, it wasn't my initiative. I was just asked to come in and take it over until NITV found a CEO. And, uh, you know, I just moved back to retire in Alice Springs with my mum. Two weeks later, this call comes. Uh, another couple of weeks, I'm in Sydney getting a handover from the then secretariat that was run out of a private home in on the north side of uh, Sydney. And and I think I put a lot of stuff at uh, UTS, actually, and did some work at UTS. And then I bought a laptop and I had an iPhone and I went back to Alice Springs, you know, continued to do the work that was required by NITV. And then they did advertise and uh, I had to do all the um, board papers for this meeting at the end of January. So I decided after just three weeks with NITV that I was going to apply for the CEO's job because I could see the potential. And so I was interviewed and I was offered the job and I was just so excited. So I set up in Alice Springs. And at first I worked with just my laptop and my mobile on my back veranda. And then I started recruiting staff and I recruited a very experienced television person in my deputy CEO. And that was absolutely essential because I knew nothing about television, but I knew about our people. And and it was to be a, a television service by, for and about our people, no matter where they lived. And then we had to recruit other people, you know. So Tanya Denning was one of our, she's now the head of uh, NITV at SBS, a very experienced and excellent leader of NITV. So she was one of our early recruits. And so we had commissioning editors around the country trying to get the content made on limited budgets. So I was very clear with the board you know, when we had all the ideas and the pictures that were being made by filmmakers, uh, our mob, we had a few television executives and filmmakers themselves on the board. So I'd be quite, you know, sort of careful about what information I shared about the new pictures because I didn't want anybody's ideas being picked up and run with when we were trying to build that capacity out at the community level and, and give a, a wider forum for aspiring filmmakers, you know, and growing that talent. So we decided also to run with high volume, low cost. So the um, Koori Football Carnival in New South Wales, in fact, it's, you know, it was one of our most popular programs. I think it still is the most popular. (laughs) (laughs) So we started that early because we'd get high volume, low cost comparatively. Although some people who ran the Koori Carnival uh, you know, thought that we were like Channel 9 or we could pay all these rights or, you know, whatever you pay. I said, no, it don't work like that, brother. This is about sharing it with our people. We just don't have that sort of money to pay, you know. So it should be a cooperative, coordinated, collaborative approach to make sure that the people who can't get to the carnival, 
can see it, you know? I guess a couple of things that come out of that is that, you know, you you go from being in the public service to setting up a television station and it's really clear when you tell that story, Ani Pat, that one of the things that is really important in leadership is that you bring in the best people to help you. Like you, you know what you know when you know what you don't know and you bring in the best people and I think that's a lovely quality of your leadership and I think the other thing that comes through is that you, you know, you play with a straight bat. If you, if you don't have the money for, for something, you tell, you tell people that. And I think uh, that's a part of your leadership that's, that also engenders a lot of respect from people. Because I know when you say something to them that they're getting a straight answer. From your perspective in all that you've learned, um, you know, you, you've been working in, in this space for a really long time. You would have seen some things move forward. You would have seen some things move backwards. We've got some really intractable problems over representation, the juvenile justice system, increasing suicide rates suggest too. And of course, looking at all the issues around COVID. From your perspective, what do, what what is important for you in terms of not giving up? When, when you see things going backwards or people would look at an issue and go, God, that's hard. What is it about you or what helps you to not give up when you see that and to just keep going, to get on that motorbike and keep riding? Yeah. Well, I'm driven uh, by uh, the sense of our people deserving a better quality of life on our terms in our own country. I'm absolutely driven and uh, I'll do that until the day I die. And But, you know, there are things like that I won't give up on, like early childhood development and, and education, housing. I will beat those drums until I drop dead. The housing situation for Aboriginal people in this country and COVID exacerbates this and, you know, it just shows, it just lays bare the bones of the terrible situation our communities face. But combined with that is environmental health. So my faith lies in the community leadership at the local level and the community-controlled organisations who can deliver and do deliver a much better quality of service to our people when they are resourced properly by governments to do so. But even when they're not, they go the extra mile that non-Indigenous organisations and governments do not. You know, a lot of people in those uh, other sectors just see their jobs as a job. You know, our people are committed to the whole journey to make sure that we get things right. I mean, if Aboriginal people choose to go and work in mainstream and and just look after their own nuclear or extended family, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But if you work in the community-controlled sector, uh, your first obligation is to the quality of the services that you provide to your people. And every organisation I've led and been a part of, that's what I've always tried to emulate and insist upon. So, look, just picking up on that and, and your advocacy in this space around the importance of community-controlled organisations, you are also, as part of your 
role or in addition really to your role at Nacho, you head what's called um, the the organisation of peaks for the Aboriginal community, so all of our peak organisations. And importantly, I just want to, want to uh, draw attention to the fact that you have been instrumental in getting a seat at the table for those organisations in the Close the Gap reboot and in the, in the Close the Gap going forward. I don't think anyone who's been listening to you will be surprised that you've been able to do that given how tenaciously you demanded your own education. But I wonder if you could share with us what it's been like to to have that seat at the table, what a difference it's made. And how do you stare down Scott Morrison to make sure you get a billion dollars for your closing the gap goals? Well, I think it's very important that you understand uh, who the decision makers are and how to get to them. So I did and we did. We got uh, a meeting with Scott Morrison and uh, six of us went along and said, you can't do the refresh without us. We have to be involved in a direct shared decision-making role with all the governments involved, and otherwise you're going to fail again. And he got it. He understood that, and he said, yes, I agree. He went back a week. So we had him on the 6th of December 2018, and he went to COAG on the 12th of December to the Adelaide meeting, and they all agreed. So that then led us to increase the number of peaks. So we're the Coalition of Peaks, and we have our own website, and uh, people should look there for updates and, and what we've achieved so far. It's been an incredibly intensive process so I meet with over 50 peaks every fortnight, uh, Larissa. We have an hour and a half where we go through every position that we're going to agree to or disagree to uh, in our negotiations with all levels of government as per the requirements in the national agreement. So what I did with the national agreement this time, the big game changer in the new approach to closing the gap is the four priority reforms. And they are the structural changes in the way government works with our people from now and forevermore, as far as we're concerned. So the first one is shared decision-making, informal partnerships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and governments at every level. So don't think as a government you can just go in and say, well, we'll do this for you if you meet these criteria. It's best that you go in and sit down with the Aboriginal community and say, what are your priorities and how can we make sure that, you know, we're responding to those in the way that you think is necessary and let's negotiate the terms and conditions. That's the sort of empowerment that has to be given to our people and that's the sort of empowerment that's happening with us who are members of the Coalition of Peaks in all our engagements with governments across the country. Uh, So it's the first time, uh, you know, and we have equal responsibilities for producing an implementation plan for being professional in our engagements with governments and whatever. Don't worry, tempers flare and, you know, but uh, we try to keep that, well, mainly from me, uh, but I do try to keep that in check. But sometimes I think it's necessary to let people know we're not putting up with this nonsense and things have to get better. I have found that I've had to do that a bit more with officials rather than ministers. There's no doubt though, that we're in good hands if you're representing Asani, Pat. <laughs> Thank you, Larissa. <laughs> so the, getting the, you know, just over a billion dollars, I was glad because that was a billion dollars, 1.1 billion odd 
that we didn't have the day before, and that's just the Commonwealth's investment. So we've got the implementation plans from every jurisdiction now, including our own, and we're going to do full assessment to see what's in line with the national agreement, what they've uh, included, how key that is, and where the gaps are, and give advice back to governments, and they can give us advice on our plan, but I think our plan's pretty solid because our plan is all about in making sure that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community at large understands what we're doing and why and how they can, you know, send us information. That was Arnie Pat Turner speaking with me on ABC Radio Sydney's Focus.